told the other two services to do this, so it just feels right to do it again. If you wouldn't mind taking out your phone and throwing it at the back wall, just go ahead and do it. Throw it away. Because I know by now you are twitchy. You, you check Amazon and Walmart and all these sites, other sites about every 20 seconds to find out where your packages are and if they're going to arrive on time and all that sort of stuff. Right now, we want you to just put all of that away and focus on one thing. Let's take some time this morning to focus on Jesus. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house of and the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available to them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night, An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be the sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, A great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, who was lying in a manger. When they had seen him, They spread the word concerning about what had been told to them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. On the eighth day, when it came time to circumcise the child, he was named Jesus the name the angel had given him before he was even conceived.
That name and those words so beautifully sum up the story of Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. Not God was with us or God will be with us, but today, right now, here, God is with us and he's with us always. Such an important message for all of us. We've been looking at the life of a man named Joshua all fall long. And part of his story, you remember he's told, be strong and courageous. Why? Not because he's a mighty man, not because the enemy is weak, but because Emmanuel. God is with him. God is with him wherever he goes. And so he has no reason to ever be concerned. Today will likely be one of the more unusual Christmas messages you've ever heard. And I hope at the same time, it's one of the most compelling. We've been wandering through this book with this man named Joshua. We saw him as a a slave in Egypt, and then he's in the wilderness. He, He crosses the Jordan River on dry ground. He comes into the promised land. He leads the people to capture Jericho and capture Ai. And then through deception of the other party, he enters into an alliance with a group of people from Gibeon. Well, the people of the land are getting concerned not only about the Israelites, but now that they have an alliance, that they're in alliance with Gibeon. And so the king of Jerusalem, his name is Adonai Zedek, an interesting name. It's two Hebrew words mashed together. Adonai is the name for master or Lord, and Zedek is the word for righteousness. So every time he hears his name, what does he hear? Master of righteousness, Lord of righteousness. I mean, talk about a name that's going to swell your head a little bit. You are the master of righteousness, the king of Jerusalem. Well, he's concerned because now not only is the Israeli army strong and mighty, but now they've formed alliance with the people of Gibeon, a large city with strong warriors. And so he talks to the other tribes of the area and he says, we need to come together and we need to, we need to get on this fast. Our first task is to defeat the Gibeonites. We need to divide and conquer. We need to get them out of the picture. And once they're out of the way, then we can take on Israel. When the Gibeonites get the news, they send a message to Joshua. They say, don't abandon your servants now. We have an alliance. They're going to come attack us. We need your help. Please come rescue us. Verse 7 says, so Joshua and his entire army, including his very best warriors, left Gilgal to set out for Gibeon. And while they're doing that, Joshua gets a message straight from the Lord his God. Do not be afraid of them, for I have given you victory over them. Not a single one of them will be able to defeat you or stand up against you. Not one. So they travel throughout the night, and they come, and they they take the Amorite army by surprise. Now, I love the beginning of verse 10. It says, the Lord threw them into a panic. He often does this. When he's acting supernaturally on our behalf, he causes confusion and deception on the part of the enemy. And so there's, there's confusion. And, and before you know it, they are taking on that army handily. Many of them start to run away. And what God does in that moment is he actually he sends this supernatural hailstorm that starts destroying the army even further. We come to verse 12. Verse 12 says, On the day the Lord gave the Israelites victory over the Amorites, Joshua prayed to the Lord in front of the people. Don't miss that. This isn't his private personal devotional prayer in the morning or a prayer that he prayed back out behind the barn where nobody could see or hear. This was in front of all the people. He prays a bold, audacious prayer. 
He prays, God, let the sun stand still over Gibeon and the moon over the valley of Ai-Jalan. I don't know if you've ever had one of those days that you're just like, man, I need a little more day here. And you're like, God, would you just give me an extra hour? Would you give me an extra day this week? I need a little more time. Well, Joshua has the boldness to pray this to the Lord his God. Don't let the sun move. Don't let the moon move. We need more time. Scripture goes on to say, so the sun stood still and the moon stayed in place until the nation of Israel had defeated all of its enemies. When you read a little further in verse 13, we read this. Is this the event not recorded in the book of Jashar? Now, if you look through your Bible in text, you're not going to find a book of Jashar. It's not in there. This is a book that's not available to us. It's not extant. But we know some things about the nature of it. It was likely a book of poetry. And it was a book of poetry about the great warriors of Israel. And certainly, Joshua's story would be part of a book of great warriors of Israel. There are actually other times in the scripture that this particular book, the book of Jashar, is referred to as well. What does it say? And what does the book of Joshua say? The sun stayed in the middle of the sky, and it did not set as on a normal day. It says there has never been a day like this one before or since when the Lord answered this kind of prayer, surely the Lord fought for Israel that day. Then Joshua and the Israelite army returned to their camp at Gilgal. I have a question for you today. Do you believe in miracles? Do you believe, do you believe that miracles happen? When you read the miracles of the Bible, do you believe that the miracles are true? We read a miracle, for example, of, of Jesus touching a man with leprosy and this, this snow-white disease falls from his body and he has, he has skin as soft and beautiful as a newborn baby. We have another person that Jesus takes divine spit and mud and puts it on the person's eyes and, and clarity comes to their sight and they're able to see. To some degree, those miracles, when I read those miracles, I go, wow, they're amazing. And I believe them. I trust them. It changed one person's universe. One person was completely changed. But then we come to this miracle. The sun and the moon stood still. They stood still. This impacts not just a personal universe. This literally impacted the entirety of the universe. The world, the solar system, the universe, was, ever, it was impacted by this moment. Maybe you know enough about astronomy and physics and other sciences that you go, cool story, but I don't know if I can buy that one. I don't know, I don't know if I can really trust that one. Do you believe? Do you believe in miracles? I need to define a miracle for you. Let me give you two definitions. The first is from uh, the guy who was my theology professor at, at Trinity. He says, a miracle is a less, than kind, less common kind of God's activity. Now, what is he saying there? They don't happen every day. So I know what's going to happen this week. <clears throat> Someone among you is going to wait until Wednesday, and you're going to head over to Jewel to buy your ham. And, you, and you're going you're gonna to come racing in, and it's a crowded parking lot, and, and you're going you're gonna to go, and the second slot's going to be open. You go, it's a miracle. 
and, and you're going to go on in and all the hams are gone. They're all gone. And just as you go up there, a person comes walking from the back, cradling a ham, and you go, it's a miracle. It's my ham. Oh, my goodness. It, we, we tend to look at those moments as miracles, and what they are is dinks. You know, it happened, whatever. A miracle is a less than ki- common kind of God's activity in which he arouses people's awe and wonder and bears witness to himself. Do you remember when the fire came down on Mount Carmel, what the people shouted? The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. He does these things to turn our attention to him. The other definition reads, unlike God's ordinary providence, or in other words, unlike the way God ordinarily works, his miraculous intervention, don't miss the word intervention, involves a suspension or alteration of natural law and processes in particular circumstances. In other words, the God who created all things says, I still rule over all things and I can do what I want to do because I am God. And so in this moment, I'm suspending this law of nature, whatever is necessary, in order to prove my power and my glory over the universe in order for you to know that I am God. So when it comes to Bible teachers explaining miracles, they have one of a handful of approaches, one of a handful of ways that they try to get people to believe in a miracle. For some, they will explain a miracle as it's a myth. It's a myth. It's a story. It's a well-meaning story. It's a story meant to inspire. It's a story meant to strengthen faith. But but truth be told, it's not true. You know, the, the Romans had their myths, and the Greeks had their myths, and the Hebrews had their myths. And this is just one of those, one of those great, fantastic stories. But nonetheless, it is just a story. Some will try to explain it away as a myth. Others will go for a rational approach. They try to appeal to our mind. If I were taking a rational approach today, I I might spend time explaining to you how it's possible for the sun to stay still or to look back at evidence of the fact that that happened on that particular day, trying to appeal to your mind so that you might say, yes, I can actually, I can believe with my mind that that is true. I can can trust those words. You know, we come to this time of year and, and we're told that a star appeared over the place where Christ was born. And in recent years, people have tried to explain that star very naturally. They believe that that there was a a congruence of, of stars that came together in the sky to form one perfect, brilliant star. And that's how this happened. And and that explanation seems to make sense. Or even like tomorrow night, Jupiter and Saturn are going to cross. Jupiter is always the the brightest star in the sky next to a plane from O'Hare. And and so you have Jupiter and Saturn and they come together and boom, brilliance. And we'll try to explain it in a natural way. There's a third way to explain a miracle. We don't. We don't. We don't explain it. Why? It's a miracle. It is a supernatural work of God. And we trust, we trust that that's what's happening. It doesn't happen often. When it does, it arouses our sense of awe and wonder. And it bears witness to the truth that God is real. It's, it's uncommon. It's an intervention, a suspension or alteration of natural laws and processes in particular circumstances. And so I ask you again, do you believe? Do you believe in miracles? Maybe I could break it down even a little bit more. Do you believe at all? Do you believe at all? 
Do you believe that there's a God? Do you believe the Bible has any truth? Do you believe that there was a Jesus? Do you believe anything, anything at all? When we look at uh, belief, I, I want to put belief on a scale this morning. And while we probably could have more than four points on this scale, I'm going to give you four today. The cynic, the skeptic, the person who is open, and the person of faith. Let's start with the cynic over on the left. The cynic is a scoffer and a mocker. They just, they scoff and mock at everything. And the truth be told, they're not sincere in their quest for truth. They're not really looking to find out what is true or false. They just want to mock you. They just want to make fun of you. They're, they're kind of, they're an intellectual bully. They, they get a kick out of beating you up because what kind of fool would believe that? You actually, you actually believe that stuff? Cynicism is part of the spirit of our day, not just toward faith, not just toward God, but quite literally toward everything. There is a cynical spirit that is insincere and just wants to intellectually bully the other person. The funny thing is I think often we see that as coming from a place of, of power and aggressiveness when in truth, more often than not, it's coming from a place of deep hurt and woundedness. The person is unwilling to trust and so instead, they push, they push, they push back. Let's move to the skeptic. That's a step away from the cynic. The, the skeptic is a doubter and they raise questions. And let me say today, there's nothing wrong with doubting and raising questions. You can't come to a place of faith if you don't have some doubts. You don't come to a place of faith if you don't have questions. God doesn't say, the sun stood still. Believe it, shut up, don't ask me any questions. He wants us to ask questions. He wants us to explore these pieces of our faith. But ultimately, the skeptic wants a rational answer. They want you to be able to explain it in a way that they can see, they can touch, they can make sense of it. In reality, both the cynic and the skeptic have decided they are God. They're the final authority. They're the ones that will make the decision. Let's, let's just go... Just to the other side of this, to the person who is open, the open person and the skeptic have a lot in common. They too are doubters. They too have questions. But they find themselves at a point in life that they say there might be a spiritual answer. There's an openness to the spiritual side. There's an openness to say, perhaps there is a power greater than me. Perhaps I am not the God of my universe. Perhaps there's something or someone out there that gets it, and I need to place trust in them. And so the person who is open is starting to explore from a place of sincerity. Just like the skeptic. The skeptic is sincere, but they ultimately say, it's got to make sense to me. The person who is open is open to faith, which leads us to the last person, and that is the person of faith, the person who is a true believer, the person who, who doesn't mock but trusts, doesn't scoff but believes, and is absolutely sincere in their, in their pursuit of God and their pursuit of faith, and sincerity is absolutely necessary. This is what the Bible says in Hebrews 11 about faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. You can come to him with presence. You can come to him with anything else. You could, it says it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to him must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who sincerely seek him. 
God wants that for us. He wants us to come to a place of faith. Let me give you a definition of faith straight from the Bible. The first verse of that chapter says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There is an assurance there. It hasn't happened yet, but, but I am convinced it will happen. We sing these words in this song this morning that talk about the fire in Christ's eyes when he comes back to bring his people home. I believe with all my heart that day is coming. There is an assurance of things hoped for, a conviction of things not seen. Though I cannot see it, though I cannot touch it, though I cannot even prove it, I believe the one who can. I believe in God himself, and so I have faith. You know, when Jesus died and was buried and rose again, he appeared to his disciples, 10 of them. Judas is now dead, and Thomas is nowhere to be found. He appears to them, and, and, and when Thomas comes back, I don't know if Thomas was like always the butt of the joke or what, but, but Thomas comes back, and, and they say, we've seen the Lord, and he said, no, you have not. Here you go again. You're doing this to me again. And they say, no, we have. And Thomas's response is what? He says, I am not going to believe until I see the nail wounds in his hands. I put my fingers in them and place my hands into the wounds in his side. Where does this place him on the belief scale? I don't think he's a cynic. There's some sincerity here. He's a skeptic. He's saying, I have questions, I have doubts, and I've got to prove it. I've got to prove it. I've got to touch. I've got to see. I'm not going to believe someone else's word. I've got to do this. Well, we know that Jesus does appear to them a week later, and Thomas doesn't touch his hands, and he doesn't touch his side. He sees Jesus, and he just bows and says, my Lord and my God. A little later in that chapter, here's what Jesus says. You believe because you have seen me. Blessed are those who believe me without seeing. That's where we are today. We are not people who walk up to a barn and see a baby in a manger. We are not people who walk up to a hill in Jerusalem and see a man on a cross or see a man walking out of a tomb or see a man performing miracles. We are people who read a book about a man who lived and died and, was, and rose again and lives today on our behalf. We get the opportunity of being people of faith. Now, why all this talk about miracles today? Well, because it is not possible to accept the Jesus of Christmas without the miracles that are part of the wrapping of the package, that beautiful gift of Christmas. So think about this for a moment. Think of the, think of the miracle of prophecy. We have people like Isaiah, hundreds of years before Jesus is born, saying, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. We have a man named Micah, who hundreds of years before Jesus is born says, the baby will be born in Bethlehem. The Savior will be born in Bethlehem. That doesn't make logical sense to people. They're expecting the capital city. They're expecting Jerusalem. But here's this man, hundreds of years before, saying, no, he'll be born in Bethlehem. You know, I made this reference beforehand to, to tracking gifts on our phone. I've, I've been tracking now for, for two weeks a, a dolly, not a baby dolly, a, a dolly dolly, a hand truck dolly. And, and about every two or three days, I get a new notification. It's coming today. It's coming today. It's, believe it or not, it's scheduled to come again today before 10 o'clock. It's scheduled to come. I keep watching. I keep waiting. They can't get it right. Here are men hundreds of years before Jesus is born that get it absolutely right. The miracle of prophecy. How about the miracle of, of angelic beings? 
The fact that an angel appears to Zechariah, appears to Joseph, appears to Mary. The fact that the night sky is full of angels and the shepherds see them and hear them and follow the instruction to go find the baby born in a barn. What about the miracle of the journey? Micah has said the baby will be born in Bethlehem. You know where Mary is? Nazareth. 90 miles away. And not 90 Amtrak miles away or Southwest miles away or even, you know, uh, nice Toyota miles away. 90 long steps miles away. 90 donkey ride miles away. A long, long way. And she is about to give birth. And God supernaturally calls on a wicked king to have a census, to have a tax. And he says, it's time. It's time for everybody to head to their hometown. And here's Joseph. He's from the hometown of Bethlehem. And he's got to go. And you know what Mary did not say? Very familiar words to us. Joseph, out of an abundance of caution, I think I should stay home. I think I should stay here and wait. And when you come back, you can meet the baby boy. No, you know what what Mary does? She says, I'm coming with you. I'm coming with you. She doesn't know about this prophecy. She, she would have been in Bethlehem for nine months, right? Waiting. No, God intervenes to get her to the place where God says the child would be born. When Brian was about to be born in 1989, we lived in Wheeling while I was going to school. And we always went to Bloomington for Thanksgiving and Christmas. It was just, it was the constant tradition. Get down to grandma and grandpa's. That particular year, everybody came to us. Because, because Brian, theoretically, according to the due date, was minutes from being born. It was going to happen. It was going to happen over Thanksgiving. December 12th, he finally arrived into the world. Thanks for doing that to your mother. But anyway, um, you know, generally we make our plans around when's this baby coming? And God miraculously intervened and got the baby to the right place at the right time at the right moment where all of prophecy could be fulfilled. Or how about the miracle of the virgin birth? The man in the picture is not the father of Jesus. God the Father is the father of Jesus. The only way that Jesus could be your savior and mine and the savior of the whole world is to be fully human and fully divine. Is to be fully 100% human, just like you, and fully 100% divine, just like God. And so God intervenes because the one thing men give to their children stinks. Their sin nature, that's on us. We did that. And so God says, no, I will be the father of my son. And in that, he will not have a sin nature. And so he can live a sinless life. And when he dies, his death doesn't have to be applied to his sins, but it can be applied to our sin and the sin of the whole world. All of these miracles are part of who Jesus is. I get asked from time to time, can I believe in Jesus and not believe in the miracles? Can I believe in God and, and not buy into all the miracles in the Bible? Part of me wants to say, just believe in God. Just believe in God. And then the spiritual biblical side of me says, if you don't believe in miracles, you don't believe in God. If you don't believe in miracles, you don't believe in the baby who was born, who died to give us eternal life. There's a line that is used again and again in the book of Hebrews, the one that we mentioned, Hebrews 11, verse after verse begins this way. By faith, by faith, by faith. The only way that you can come into a relationship with God today or ever is by faith. 
You're never going to make sense of it with your own head. The way of the skeptic doesn't work. The way of the cynic doesn't work. There needs to be an openness to the spiritual activity in your life that ultimately you're willing to say, I believe, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so I offer you the scale today. From cynic, skeptic, open in faith, where are you? Where do you fall today? As you approach Jesus there in the barn, lying in a manger, cynic, skeptic, open, or faith? You know, this whole series, we've looked at a name and again and again, the name Joshua. Ironic that the name Joshua is the Hebrew name for the person we've been talking about this morning, Jesus, Yeshua. And this morning, he longs to be worshiped by you. If you're open to him, if you're a believer, if, you're, if you have moved into that relationship with him, we're inviting you today to take communion with us. Uh, if you didn't get it as you walked in the door, there's some on the side tables up here. We even have gluten-free on either side table as well as the ones at the back. While the team is singing this song, we invite you to listen and take communion and reflect on your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and then we'll sing a song together.
There was a day that for Joshua, the sun stood still. I hope this week there will be a time that you will stand still before the sun, the Son of God, that you'll think about what we talked about today. Not only do you believe in the miracles around his birth, but do you believe in Jesus himself. There is no greater gift to be received this Christmas than the gift of the Son of God. And the only way you can unwrap him, not with your mind, not with your hands, but with faith. It takes faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. He's a rewarder of those who sincerely seek him. So reach out and accept the gift. We hope you have a great Christmas, and we look forward to seeing you next Sunday. Baby born in Bethlehem